I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Growth and adoption of software involves gathering metrics, evaluating them, and deciding among different strategies. Katie Guzman, product manager lead at Asana, explained different strategies in growth and adoption of software. We talked about metrics that can be used to evaluate this and examples of how Asana leverages that information. Katie also explained software monetization strategies and factors that can help determine what strategy to choose. At the end, we talked about team leadership and how an internship program in product management is structured. Before we begin, I'd like to thank DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. DigitalOcean offers a simple and developer-friendly cloud platform. It makes managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple options for your cloud infrastructure, and access to the infrastructure services that you need for scaling your application. DigitalOcean has a great community. They provide thousands of tutorials that are super easy to follow, and they help you stay up to date on the latest open source software and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for free with a free $100 credit at do.co slash women in tech. That's do.co slash women in tech. Thank you. Katie Guzman, product manager lead at Asana is joining us today. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're specifically product manager at Asana under growth and adoption. First, I want to begin with getting a sense of what product manager entails. Can you explain this a little bit? Absolutely. Product managers work alongside a team of engineers and designers to build some of the products you love. So whether it's Spotify or Instagram, or in my case, Asana, The job of a product manager is to figure out what to build and then make it happen. And figuring out exactly what to build is super exciting to me. So I often use the analogy of it's like selecting a gift for someone. To get someone an awesome gift, you really have to know who that person is and how they go about their life. You also have to understand constraints. It's not realistic to get everyone a super expensive pony. And so I really think about my job as how do I figure out what to give someone, not just what they ask for, but what they really need and what might delight them. And so at Asana, my job is to partner with folks to really understand the issues that people face at work and with collaboration and figure out solutions to make their lives at work easier. And when I get that right and see someone who's using a product that I've helped to create and their eyes light up and say, wow, that's, that's actually going to make my life easier. Those are my best days. Can you talk a little bit about diving into the figuring out what are sort of some of the components in this process? Absolutely. So there's a number of inputs in terms of figuring out what to build when you're approaching that problem as a product manager. And the first source of inspiration is absolutely the customer. And so what we'll sometimes do is either interview uh, customers or watch them do a usability to see how they're using the product today, where they might be tripping up. So 
part one is, is the customer input. They'll also talk to our folks in customer success or customer support, write in tickets about things that aren't working for them. And so we'll use that as some rich data and input to figure out how we might be able to make the product better for our customers. So that's one input. The other input is our vision. So you've probably heard the analogy about building a, a faster horse. To prevent just building a, a faster horse, Product managers also need to have a sense of where we want to take the company, where we want it to go, and thinking about not just what's possible today, but with new technology and trends, what might be possible in the next two to three years. And so we also consider what is the company's vision and mission, and aligning that with customer needs and what technology can make possible is how we figure out exactly what to build. Exactly, and I really like the analogy you were referring to. Is this one about the faster horse. And just for people that aren't familiar with this, this is something Henry Ford said. In it illustrates that sometimes people don't know what they want. And what he says is, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, when in reality, we got the automobile, right? Exactly. You mentioned two components of product manager. One is this phase of figuring out what to build. The other one was make it happen. I know this is a very broad area and we could talk hours about it, but what are some of the main things in this process about making it happen? Absolutely. So there are a couple components. The first thing in order to make it happen is to really clearly articulate for the team what are the problems we're trying to solve and the goal that we're trying to achieve. A product manager works alongside designers and engineers, but doesn't manage them. And so in order to make it happen, a product manager really relies on the collaboration of these other employees at the company. And so in order to make sure everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction, one of the most leveraged things a product manager can do is being super crisp on what problem are we trying to solve and what are the goals of this project? And making that not just kind of a bullet point somewhere, but really inspirational um, and aligning everyone around how are we actually going to achieve kind of this big project. So that's step one, outlining the problems and the goals. The next part of making it happen is saying, okay, if, if that's our target, um, how are we going to get there? What is the strategic trade-offs we're going to make? Because in any company, whether it's a big public company or a small startup of five people, there's always going to be scarcity of resources. So a product manager can also really help the team saying, okay, of all of these gazillion things that we can build, what is actually most important to do first? And what can be maybe a nice to have or something that we'll do later? So strategic prioritization and sequencing is the next bucket of how to make things happen. And then finally, there's what falls in the white space. Some people like to use the name that a, a PM is kind of the mini CEO of the product. So at the end of the day, if the product is ultimately going to be a success or a failure, the PM will need to ensure that nothing really falls through the cracks. And the list of things that can go into this white space Oh my goodness, the sky's the limit. It can involve partnering with marketing to make sure that the launch materials are really reflective of what the team has built. 
It can mean rolling up your sleeves um, after we've had a release to do a little bit of QA to make sure there are no bugs in the product. It can mean running out and getting some pizza for the team or some donuts to help kind of raise spirits as you're hitting the finish line. And some of these are the really small details that kind of bring the team together to enable them to do their best work. Exactly. Being empathetic about, oh, they've been working and nobody is really getting lunch because they forget. So some things like that, like you said, the little details. Exactly. Okay, just to do a quick recap in the make it happen part, you highlighted three things. The first one is outline the problem and the goals. What problem are we trying to solve? The second one is more focused on thinking about what is actually important to focus on first and how are we going to get there? And the last one is the one you just talked about, making sure nothing falls in the white space and there's various things involved here like talking to marketing and engaging with the team and things like that. Exactly. I want to focus now that we understand what, we have a general idea about what product manager is. I want to talk about some of the things you worked on during your time at Azana. I saw you joined when you started to work on monetization and scaling this program. Can you explain what this program consists of? Absolutely. So when I joined Asana about three and a half years ago, most we had four product managers, and each product manager was a, a generalist. We each were kind of just working on the most high-priority project at the time, and we were about 150 employees. And as the company started to grow, I started to dig into the data a little bit, and I noticed we had so much customer love. People would tweet and exclaim how much Asana had changed their lives, and the engagement with the product in terms of usage metrics was really, really high, and I thought, wow, this is fabulous. But what was a little bit off was the kind of percent of those really engaged users that were actually paying for the product. Asana has a freemium model. So we have a a free version of the product that people can use in, in perpetuity. And then we have a premium version that has some more user and more features. And so I was a bit surprised by the number of people who were paying um, versus those that were free. And and this isn't an uncommon problem. Uh, Usually when a company is just getting started, um, you really focus on kind of user growth and user activation. And then as the company matures a bit, you make a decision to say, okay, now's the time to really start focusing on, on generating revenue. And so it was the time for Asana to really do the same. And so, As a PM of monetization, it was my job to figure out how do we address um, monetization for Asana. And this is even more cross-functional than a lot of traditional PM roles because pricing and packaging is, is really a team sport. Sales has a huge interest in, as you can imagine, of how we kind of price and sell the product as does marketing and finance. And so it was my job to kind of get all of the right people in the room to figure out some of the critical questions of what should our business model be? Should we continue with this freemium approach? Should we have a free trial? Should it be something else completely? Also figuring out what exactly should people be paying for? Should it be user limits? Should there be particular features that are in premium versus free? Should it be something else? Data limits? And then finally, how do we charge? Do we charge 
per person? Do we charge per task? Figuring out exactly what people were going to be paying for in a way that was clear and transparent to the customer and also good for the business. I know that earlier you mentioned that Asana is helping people solve issues at work and collaboration. We did a show with Beth from Asana, but I just wanted to do a, just a quick recap on the product, for example, the freemium versus the premium and the essential goal of the product. Absolutely. So Asana is a work management tool that helps teams complete their projects on time and more effortlessly. And so if you can imagine, if you've ever done a, a group project, so much time is wasted in conversations like, wait, I thought, I thought you were going to do that. When is this thing going to be done? Can you help me find that file that we were discussing? Asana makes sure that from end to end, when you kick off an initiative with a team, it's very clear who's doing what by when. And so that's the basics of the product. It's uh, projects with tasks, due dates, assignees. And so as I mentioned, Asana is a free, has a freemium model. And so we have a free product that is great for personal use. Some people you know, use Asana to plan their weddings or for their grocery list. And that free product has the basics kind of work management. So you can create a project have kind of tasks with assignees and due dates, invite up to 15 people. It's a really solid, quite generous free product. Mm -hmm. What we thought about in terms of what should be in the premium product was what are the things when a user is kind of using this tool that indicates they're using it for kind of quote unquote serious work, meaning they're not just using this for their grocery list or planning their wedding, but we have some signals that this is something that is being used in a work context and therefore they should be paying for. So examples of this are privacy. If you want to make a project private to a few members, that is a premium feature. If you want to do an advanced search on something, like figure out how many tasks were completed in the last week by certain team members, that also kind of indicates this is being done for serious work. That's a premium feature. If you want to map all of your work on a timeline to make sure you really hit that project due date, that also is a premium feature. And so we use that kind of principle, if you will, of is this something that indicates serious work? And also, is this something that a professional buyer would appreciate as high signal that this is something that should be premium versus free? What are some useful metrics to look at that can help determine a monetization strategy? Good question. So kind of when thinking about metrics, I actually like to kind of take even a, a step back a little bit and not just focus on kind of monetization in particular, but growth in general, because it's not really just a, a single metric um, that's important in growing a business, but a constellation of them to look across. And so a common kind of framework that folks use what is called pirate metrics. It's a fun mnemonic because it stands for R and I'll go through kind of each of these and how they help kind of guide a business towards growth and then ultimately monetization. So the R metrics include acquisition, activation, retention, referral, and revenue. And so 
At the start, acquisition is how a company acquires users. And the key here, and I think sometimes a common mistake that's made, is just thinking about acquisition as getting any old users. But what's really important when kind of growing the business and then ultimately monetizing it is to make sure that the team is doing activities that acquire the type of users that will be ultimately successful customers. So you just went over acquisition. Can you talk about activation? Absolutely. Activation, I think, is one of the most fun metrics to think about because it's that magical time from when a customer discovers and signs up for your product to when they kind of have that aha moment and really recognize the value and have that click of, yes, um, this is what I was looking for. And this metric most closely maps to what you would think about as adoption. So some examples that are common in the, the activation space, if you will, is Facebook had this classic getting seven friends in 10 days and really aligned their growth efforts around how can we ensure that every person who signs up gets seven friends in 10 days. Um, Dropbox had a metric around after sign up, can we get people to put at least one file in their Dropbox folder? Uh, when I worked at Intuit, we really, who makes kind of QuickBooks and TurboTax, for QuickBooks users, we really looked at can we get people to send and then ultimately get paid on their first invoice? And so this is that aha moment when a customer's eyes light up that is a good early predictor of kind of long-term retention. So that actually brings us to the third metric to consider, which is retention. And this is how many of your users stick around for repeat use. Really getting retention right is the key to a sustainable business. If you only focus on those first two of acquisition and activation, you're gonna have a very leaky bucket. And sure, you may be able to grow the business for a few years by going out and paying for or hunting a number of new customers, but it's so much more expensive to do that than to keep your existing customers happy and around. Exactly. What about the last two, which is referral and revenue? Yes, so referral is a bit of a riff on acquisition, but it's the best type of acquisition, which is how can you get your customers who already love your product to refer other people to use your product? One of the leading indicators of this is something called NPS, the Net Promoter Score. Um, it's the question, how likely would you be to refer this product or service to a friend or colleague? And then ultimately, if they kind of give that a high score, that signal that even if they're not using the product itself to refer another customer, that at the proverbial water cooler, so to speak, they're telling people how awesome your product is, and that will inspire more signups. And then finally is revenue. And so, you know, revenue is a big part of monetization, but the last one in the list because it requires these first four in order to have a healthy base of customers to monetize. If you don't have a product that folks love, it doesn't really matter what price it is. And so that's kind of the last one in the list. Through your time at Asana working in growth and adoption, can you give an example of a metric that was looked at and how it influenced the course of the growth or the adoption of the software? Absolutely. So one thing that is fairly unique about Asana 
versus other types of software is that it's really a collaborative tool. And so one of the things that we look at when you think, okay, what is the essence of Asana? It's not just a single person signing up and kind of visiting the application you know, twice in a week, which is a pretty common metric that other growth managers look at when they're kind of optimizing their product. But for us, what it's really about is can we get a group of people collaborating together? And so one of the kind of big metrics for us at Asana is can we get a group of people who are sending notifications to each other and ultimately creating a project where there is activity and collaboration. And thinking about the business in that way has changed us from just considering, okay, can we make this person singularly successful with the product to thinking, okay, what is the chain reaction that we need to create of the first person coming in making something successful so that when the second and third person come in, they can all collaborate effortlessly. I see. I want to contrast what we've been talking about, which has been focused on growth, adoption, retention of, of a product with another experience that you had before when you worked at HomeJoy, which was a platform to connect customers with home service providers. This company no longer exists What were some of the things that contributed to this from your perspective? Absolutely. When a company ultimately you know, shuts down, there's always a number of factors that can kind of contribute to that. And it, it's not uncommon. It's actually you know, more common than the, the success stories, but they're you know, less often told. And so the pearls of wisdom that I personally walked away from that experience was kind of the first really taking a, a balanced and um, mindful approach to growth. So we talked about this a little bit when describing kind of looking at growth like a system and a constellation of metrics. And I can't stress the importance of that enough. Early in a company's life, it's often really important to get customers. And so a company can actually go a long time focusing singularly on that acquisition target. You could imagine, it's actually kind of exciting to say like, let's go get our first million customers. But what I've kind of learned is you have to be really balanced in how you approach and even phrase that goal. Because if you singularly focus on just getting that first million customers, but you don't consider things like, well, what's the maximum cost we're willing to spend to acquire those customers? Or do those customers need to be of a certain quality? Or how much is it going to cost us to support those customers? Really kind of articulating uh, nuanced growth goals um, that have a balance of both quantity as well as quality is something that I, I took away from that experience. I see. And currently as lead product manager, I think I saw somewhere that's one of the things you try to do with people on your team, right? Help them focus on goal setting and have this sense of quantity and quality, right? Exactly. At Asana, we're big disciples of OKRs, objective and key results. And so I think one of the most leveraged things managers can do is really aligning with the team on what are those key results or goals that we're going to set and ensuring that the targets are something that are both ambitious but also balanced, ensuring that the cadence to help manage the team's energy is not just all due at the end of the year, but 
in kind of measured points along to get those quick wins and sustained energy. And then once there's a kind of alignment on what those kind of key results are, it's great because you can then empower the team to figure out the, the best way how to achieve those. So that's one of the things that I really try to focus on with my teams is what, what are we trying to achieve? And then folks can go run fast and figure out how to achieve it. What about the individual? For example, what are some of the factors that they can look at to evaluate if they're on a trajectory of growth or not? Yeah, so as a product manager, even though there's a wide swath of skills that and various activities that PMs do on a day-to-day, at Asana and at other companies, we have kind of a skills guide or what are the, the competencies of really kind of successful PM. And so at Asana, we have things like strategic thinking, um, team building, um, empathy and, and analytics. These are the, the skills that we coach and, and evaluate PMs on. And so, you know, most tactically, when we're having conversations with PMs on the team, we give feedback in the, the lens of, okay, on strategic thinking, kind of how are you demonstrating that on this project? So that's kind of one angle. The other angle is as a PM, you can tell if you're growing, if your projects are increasing in scope and complexity. So often when you're a PM just starting out, like folks who have joined our APM program, they're given a piece of a project that is well-scoped with fairly well-defined goals and not a ton of ambiguity. But when a PM is growing in their career, we'll start to get projects where the answer is not obvious from the start. And this is actually an inflection point in a lot of folks' career where they think, oh goodness, what's going on? I'm not quite sure what the answer is. But that's actually a, a really positive sign of growth. When something's not obvious to you at the start and you'll need to kind of work through to define what are we even solving for, that's a good sign of PM growth. I want to switch gears now and talk a little bit about internships because I know you're involved in the PM summer internship program at Asana. Can you describe what this program consists of? Absolutely. So our summer internship program is one of my favorite programs that we have at Asana because it really highlights our value of mentorship and investing in our, our teammates. So the internship consists of three parts. The first is There's really no major that's like the PM major. And so this is something that you learn more in an apprenticeship model. And so the first part is helping new PMs learn what it even means to be a PM. So we have something called mini skills series where each of the experienced PMs at Asana almost teach a class, if you will, on what it means to write a spec, what it means to collaborate effectively with engineers and designers, how to actually launch a product. So in the first few weeks, each of our PM interns kind of get these mini lectures, if you will, by each of our PMs to give them a strong foundation in the skill set. So that's the first part of the internship. The second part of the internship is a dedicated mentor that is not the intern's manager. This is the person that the intern really learns from the most. On a day-to-day, working alongside them, getting feedback, being able to shadow various meetings, really having exposure to what it's like to be a PM post-graduation. And then the final bit of the internship, which I really like to stress, is that our PM interns, their goal is to ship something. 
I think sometimes it's easy to give interns a research project, like go do competitive analysis on XYZ, um, or go write a report on this potential feature we may build in two years. What we really try to do is identify something, can they actually ship start to finish in the 10 to 12 weeks that they're here? Because honestly, that's how you learn. As a PM, having the opportunity to get a feature in a, a user's hands, see their reaction, see the data that comes back, that's the most valuable way to learn. You talked about mentorship as one of the main components of this internship. I know that they have a designated mentor, but what about other full-time employees that might be listening to this episode? In what ways would you recommend for them to engage with interns? Absolutely. Most interns are really hungry to learn. And so if you're not a formal mentor, even consider yourself an informal mentor and invite an intern into your work. See if they'd like to come to a meeting, even take notes and then kind of discuss what they learned afterwards. Offer to give them feedback or help them prep for a presentation. I think the more exposure interns can get to different parts of the organization, not just the one that they're assigned to, the more that they're going to learn, but also the more likely they'll have more connections throughout the company and be excited to, to join at the end, which ultimately is the goal of both the intern and the employer. What would you say are some of the factors that can lead to the interns returning as full time? You mentioned having the connections and this network with other employees. Is there something else? Absolutely. So, I mean, first and foremost is, is performance. So was the intern able to demonstrate that they have the skills and the mindset to be successful in the role? So at Asana, we really like to see how did they perform on their projects? Were they able to actually ship something that we thought was reasonable to ship during that timeline? What skills do they exhibit and how they went around those things? So kind of base level, just performance. But the thing that is, I mean, maybe even more important than performance is that mindset and attitude. One thing that I really look for when we're kind of discussing uh, interns' performance over the summer is did we see growth? Were they able to take a piece of feedback that was given to them earlier in the summer and incorporate and change how they went about things? At the end of the day, you know, interns are a lot of just kind of raw talent. And so having a, a learning mindset and a hunger and for feedback and, and being coachable is another really important factor in determining whether or not we bring them back full time. Is this internship available throughout the year? Right now, we only have summer internships available. And I'll include the information in the show notes for the listeners interested in applying. It sounds like a very interesting opportunity for learning and growing and getting real world experience as a product manager. Absolutely. It is highlight of our team. I think in addition for it being really great for the students, it's really energizing for the team as well because it makes you when you're kind of teaching or being having an apprenticeship with someone, it reminds you all of the reasons why you kind of fell in love with the job in the first place. Um, so it's super fun for our team as well. Well, Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking to you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of the show. Go to do.co slash women in tech to get started for free with a free $100 credit and get your application on the cloud. That's do.co 
dot co slash women in tech. Thank you.